awkward and she's difficult and yet she's the heroine and it's wonderful when you're awkward and difficult yourself and you see the heroine you know not just in one book across a whole series and you watch her grow and you see her turn into something even more amazing than she already was. Welcome to Ears Wide Open, a project of the Open Book at 201 Ponsonby Road. I'm Anna Livesey, a curator at large at the Open Book, and I realised that I failed to do the advertising piece of this, which is to say, at the Open Book, there are many amazing books to buy, and you should come in and have a look whenever you are in Auckland. And if you're not in Auckland, you can mail order books um, from the Open Book in amazing, beautifully wrapped parcels with wax seals on them. And it's incredible. Um, and I had to particularly make sure that I did the advertising on this edition because we are doing a special um, two-part series with two of the three proprietors of the Open Book. So today, sitting next to me, this evening, sitting next to me in the beautiful discussion room at the Open Book is Julie Fry. Hello, Julie. Hi, Anna. So it's so nice to have you here. So I asked Julie to send me some of her favourite books so we could talk about those things. And um, one of the books that she sent me was Birthday Letters, which is by Ted Hughes. And she's now going to read a little extract from one of the poems. You meant to knock me out with your vivacity. I remember little from the rest of that evening. I slid away with my girlfriend. Nothing except her hissing rage in a doorway and my stupefied interrogation of your blue headscarf from my pocket, and the swelling ring moat of tooth marks that was to brand my face for the next month, the me beneath it for good. Ted Hughes and Birthday Letters, why don't we just start there? It was a wonderful thing for me that you included this on your list of favourite books, because it's a book that I am very interested in and spent a lot of time with. What's the thing that made you put this book in? I've loved Ted Hughes since I was first exposed to him in high school as a sort of 15-year-old, and I loved the way he was connected to the dirt, the way as a farmer's daughter I was, and the way that was reflected in his writing. And Ted Hughes always had this sort of mystique about him in terms of his relationship with Sylvia Plath, and the, the sort of notion that we grew up with was that this was someone who was you know, not a very nice person, had did his partners particularly well. Partners and, plural, of yeah, course. Yeah, partners plural. And then this book comes out and then he dies and you open this book up and the entire narrative of those relationships shifts for you when you see his perspective. It just really was interesting to me that how we'd viewed him as a human, not just as a poet, had changed. And partly because of what he exposed of himself in, in, these, in these poems, but partly because of the way he wrote so differently in these mm. poems. So much less control, so, mm. much, so much more fluidity. And so do you see these poems as a view into the soul of Ted Hughes or as another presentation of himself to the world? I think it's another presentation of himself to the world, but how do we know? I mean, he's gone. We can't, yeah. we can't interrogate that. So it's, that's, that's part of the mystery. It's like here's someone who's been very careful with his image, presenting something to you in a way that's almost stage-managed, right? Yeah. And it, it's it's hard to know how much of this is genuine and how much of it is, is tactical. And I guess it's a very relevant question in this moment of Me Too as to does that matter to the art? So if we think the poem is part of a, an excuse 
but we think it's a great poem or we think the poem is a genuine presentation of one side of the story, does it make a difference? Do you care? I think you do. I mean, I, I reacted to these poems like viscerally as the poems that they were, but then I also reacted to them as as a woman thinking mm. about what they meant and mm. what kind of context they created. So it's it's just layers upon layers upon layers that you get from this book. It's mm. just so interesting on so many levels. Mm. Yeah, I love the sort of roughness of them. Mm. Um, and as you say, I mean, Ted Hughes's other writing is often very patterned and very precise and very tied into like a very tight kind of set of images. And these are much looser and rougher. Um, and that was fascinating to me as a poet, the idea that if you're writing about something that's maybe so raw for you, you can't process it into your perfect perfect form. And I mean, then you start second guessing and thinking, well, is that contrived or is that genuine? It's, mm. you know, it's very, very interesting. And what do you think about Sylvia Plath, uh, her writing? Um, I have done very little reading of her writing, so mm. I'm coming at this You're from... You're a partisan. No, I'm just, I, I, stopped, I stopped doing a lot of this kind of reading when I hit university and mm. kind of shifted, shifted the areas that I was focused on. And I was a huge, huge fan. I mean, I went to his funeral in Westminster Abbey. Wow. I was living in London at the Tell time. Tell us a little bit about that. So there was this lottery, and you could kind of apply for tickets to Ted Hughes's funeral. And I was just like, I'm going to do this. Well, and that's so, something to aspire to, isn't yeah, it? <laughs> I went to Ted Hughes's funeral in Westminster Abbey. So, yeah, I kind of always felt, like, conflicted because I loved his work, but I really was troubled by this other, you know, this other side of him. And where do you sit with that now? Like, what would you say... As your personal summing up of the life and work, what you know? I don't know. I, I, I don't look at it as a specific thing to him, but in general, where someone is a human that's problematic, that tends to be what I see first, no matter what they create. So it's hard for me to separate someone who's been, a, you know, been a problematic human from mm. creating great work or great art. I tend to, first of all, think of the person as a human. And so much as I love his work, I feel this disquiet when I read it and, mm -hmm. and, and love it. Mm -hmm. It sort of leaves me feeling a little bit icky. So maybe that talking about the, the person and the work maybe leads us to another book you sent in your list, which I sadly have not yet read, but maybe I will one day, called Hand to Mouth. And I described this to you in my question as a hard book because, it's, as I understand it, it's a memoir about a very hard life. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, that sounds like a difficult thing to read and to confront. And what what is the... What is the gain from having books that are uncomfortable? So Linda Torado is an incredible writer. She, you see her on Twitter. You see her everywhere she engages. She's just utterly fluid and in the moment. And she writes in a way that's absolutely compelling. She's had the experience of growing up in quite a privileged background, sort of a middle class background, but then mm -hmm. falling into poverty through mm -hmm. the kind of circumstances that really anyone in the United States can fall into poverty through. So mm -hmm. she had a car accident and she had health problems as a result. And so she ended up in a position where she was able to articulate an experience in a mm -hmm. way that maybe others that experienced that weren't able to do. Mm -hmm. Um and I, I find reading her work just this incredible sense of authenticity. And, and then what do you do with that sense of authenticity? You take it to other people who don't see it. Mm -hmm. And so you say, instead of judging someone who's in that situation, 
here is a person who can articulate it in a way that cuts through mm. all of the things that you know policymakers might say about people who are poor or who find themselves in a situation of struggle. Mm. And here's someone who can express how even if you make all the right choices and even if you're careful, life can be incredibly hard. So, yeah, for me, for me, reading her work is just it. Ch- it changes me as a policy thinker, and it makes me a better person. I'm also incredibly envious because she just expresses things so beautifully. Even when she, you know, you see her in a Twitter exchange with someone, and she's dashing stuff off and thinks, "Gosh, if I could only write that well when I'm sitting there thinking about it." It's just incredible. And so this relates then to the conversation we were having earlier before we started podcasting about your work as an economist. And you said to me that what you bring to the profession is a sense of um, understanding behaviour. And mm-hmm. in a way that's about empathy as mm-hmm. well as about knowledge. So how does your interest in these sorts of narratives relate to your work as an economist? I think that I bring to economics a really... Um, like I, I grew up on a farm. I grew up with a family that was in some ways quite dysfunctional. Um, so when I see these sort of narratives in economics about rational actors and people who behave in a rational way, I instinctively come to it from a point of that's not how the real world works. And I pull in into that perspective that I have, you know, the works of people like Linda Tirado who who reinforce that that isn't how the world works. And I see part of my job is communicating to people that wider things matter and that life isn't about how it is for the most privileged among us and how we can fit that into our models and talk about it and and make life better as a consequence. So is there a theme of narrative that links together your literary interest and your interest in economics? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the power of telling stories is is the key in all of it, and that's the way you engage people, whether it's it's in prose, whether it's in poetry, whether it's in non-fiction. The story is the, is the critical thing. And how do you f- hope to affect the world or feel you have affected the world as a writer? Because you've just had your second your second book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it was launched here last night or launched for the second time here. <laughs> Tell yeah. us the title and what it's um, about. So the new book is called Better Lives and it's about um, looking at New Zealand's migration policy instead of considering the impact on our gross domestic product per capita, um, considering the impact on our well-being as a nation over time and how that might change how we construct policy and how we might think of our priorities. So that's very much um, that's very much saying at the moment we're looking at something in a way that's quite narrow and I'd like to see us looking at it in a way that's wider and takes into account all the things that people care about when living a life they value. And in practical sense, what change would that be likely to make? Like how would the policy settings change? So one thing we talk about is at the moment we're trying to get people that create greatest economic impacts. We want young people who are highly qualified, who come in and who work and really want them to go home before they get old and start needing you know, high-cost health care or superannuation or anything like that. And in this new framework, you might say, well, what benefits does someone who's older bring to our society? You might think about a grandmother who can provide cultural connection or language support or childcare. Um, and it just it just enables you to look at the benefits that people bring alongside the costs that they may create and perhaps make a more balanced assessment of their potential contribution. And what's the reception of that been? It seems to be pretty positive. Um, it's interesting to be called a radical leftist and a radical rightist in the same breath in the same week. Um, yeah, I hope it will um, I hope it will surface some conversations that are happening. Are largely behind closed doors and closed hands at the moment. 
Um, and I think it's starting to do that. It gives, it gives, gives a safe space for people to talk about things that concern them and bring them up rather mm. than have it hidden and turn up at the ballot box and, you know, the, the Donald Trump, the Brexit, the mm-hmm. rise of the far right in Europe kind of scenario. To turn to something quite different, um, you are also uh, a mother of mm-hmm. quite a number of children, I believe. <laughs> That's right. There are five of them. <laughs> there are five of them, um, which is incredible. I'm 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 amazed and and um and and very full of admiration that other things get done in your life. But you, some of the books that you sent were also books for young adults or for mm-hmm. children. And again, I felt I actually was I felt a literal shock when I saw that my side of the mountain was one of the books that you had listed because that is a book that I must have read. I don't know, 60 times mm-hmm. as a girl. So talk to me about that book. One of my greatest frustrations in life is I have not yet managed to sell that book to any of my children. And I think it's because they are um, in a different headspace than I was growing up. So they are quite secure in who they are. And the protagonist in that book is someone who literally takes himself away from everybody and survives and thrives in connection with the world that he creates for himself. And it's just such an empowering narrative for someone who's um, a child who's a bit of a misfit and who doesn't really sort of belong where, you know, doesn't think like others and doesn't, you know, doesn't fit into the neighbourhood and the society that they find themselves in. And it was just, I mean, I read that and I just thought, I, first of all, I thought, oh, God, now I can never run away from home because this is how much work it entails. <laughs> so on the so one I'll hand, just say, you know, there's a bit of context here, which is that this, well, how old is he? He's 12 or 13? Yeah, he's, he's not old, boy. right? He yeah. runs away to the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York yeah. and he, to his old family farm, which belonged to his great-grandparents or something, and he finds a hollow tree and he lives in the hollow tree and he lives off nuts and berries and he's befriended by a hawk and, and various he makes, other... And he makes clothes out of animal skins and, and he fire. eats the liver when he's running out of vitamin, vitamin A, a. <laughs> and it's incredible. Um, and, and he develops this very secure place for himself yeah you know. he's completely safe and completely competent and completely amazing that's yeah, it's incredible and then eventually he does reconnect with his family but he does it from a position of that security and who he is it's just a lovely book and do you um want to make um almond flour or not almond flour what is it acorn flour and other such yeah i mean you just it just makes it not especially want to eat bark but you you read that and you think this is doable. Not necessarily the specifics of the things that he did, but the being, you know, independent and functioning and capable and and happy. I mean, he was really happy on his own. And I think that's one of the things I took away as a kid that didn't really fit in, was that you didn't necessarily need other things around you to fit in and be happy. You could be secure and happy in yourself. And that's such a reassuring message. I think I have very strong feelings about that book and remember it. Well, actually, I have a copy at home that I bought recently because it was a library copy that I used to read from my school library. I read it many times. Um, And then you said Beverly Cleary, and um, I read all the Ramona books as a, you know, young girl, but you have come to Beverly Cleary and Ramona more recently, I believe. Yeah, I never knew the Beverly Cleary books until I had kids of my own. And, I mean, that was really what got me hooked on reading the books my kids were reading. I mean, The Mouse and the Motorcycle is just something I would happily read once a year. It's just a fabulous, fabulous story. 
and the the sibling dis, you know the sibling discourse and relationships and all of those Ramona books just so real and just so authentic and you know you raise five children and you, you see how this operates and she just has Beverly has such a wonderful light touch with this it's not you know it's not laid on with a trail but it is absolutely real and so tough things happen in the family as well tough don't they happen. The parents lose, lose their jobs yeah. and 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 it's not and glossed over and they fight they don't they don't gloss the over pancakes it. Oh yeah, the whole. I mean, <laughs> the father the whole, makes half raw pancakes, and there's yeah. a terrible fight. Yeah, but this this is what happens in a normal family, right? And and usually in a in a you know the the other young adult books that I confronted before this one would sort of skip over that. That would just be a passing comment, and then you'd you know whip into narrative and and off your trot. But she really stays in those difficult moments, mm. and it really feels really feels real because of that. And it's a decent series, the Ramona books. Well, I bought them all mm. um, in a package for my daughter. And your daughter's how old? She's two, and right, I have not so managed to read the curve. <laughs> not managed to read any of them to her, but um, I've read a few myself. So that's I think they are wonderful books as well. And and again, Ramona, the main character, is a very empowered little girl. Mm. You know, she's tough and she's feisty, and she doesn't really fit in. She's non-compromising. Yeah, and that's what I love about her. Yeah, I mean, she just she's awkward and she's difficult and. Yet she's the heroine, and it's wonderful when you're awkward and difficult yourself, and you see the heroine, you know, not just in one book across a whole series, and you watch her grow, and you see her turn into something even more amazing than she already was. It's just wonderful. Yeah, she's definitely um, a, 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 like an archetype I go back to. Yeah, I guess in my yeah. own mind of what types of you know girls are there in the world. Mm. So, and then you talked about Mo Williams and Mo William, Willem. Yeah, Willems. it's an awful name to try and pronounce, isn't it? And, oh my God. So I, um, these are books for small children. Very small. Are, and they are incredible um, examples of the power of economy, right? Right. And that the drawings are incredibly simple. They have few words in them. I mean, some of us have got more words in them, but the Elephant and Piggy series in particular, so mm-hmm. few words and yet a very rich and complex relationship. I probably just said everything that was... <laughs> No, I mean, I, what I, do you love about these books? I have a, I have one of my children who's a, and and I had had a friend once. I went and visited a friend who was fifteen, and the mother of the friend was already having troubles with her teenage daughter, and she said to me, "I just need to tell you, if you ever have children, don't expect them to be anything like you." And I was like, "Where is this conversation coming from?" But it's actually been something that's been very, very helpful to know through my parenting journey, and when you look at Elephant and Piggy. I, I have a daughter that hates to read. I mean, she says that to me all the time. I hate reading. I don't want to read. And Elephant and Piggy is the the space in which we can read without her saying that. And the reason that I love it so much is that reading with her with this particular series is not stressful and it's not fighting. And it's not difficult and it's not confrontational. And that's because Mo Willems just has this wonderful sense of irreverence and just understands how kids think. I mean, one of my favourite books is um, called "Shall I? Can I? Sh- should I share my ice cream?" I can't remember what the verb at the front is, but you know, there's this agonising character who's trying to decide whether or not to share his ice cream, and it melts before he can actually share it with his friend. And it's just, I mean, the the tension in this little kid's book. I mean, it is drama, pure and simple. 
This guy, you know, he could write screenplays for, for any adult. He's just got this amazing sense of that. And he's a Sesame Street writer originally. Did you know yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he's yeah. won awards for his cartoon writing. Yeah. So. And do you know why Gerald the Elephant is called Gerald? Please tell me. Well, he is named after Mo Willems' favourite singer, Elephant Gerald. Well... There you go. So that's why. I have a friend who can't read those books to her children because she's, she's a gentle soul and she's like, you have to shout and I can't shout. But that's Whereas the pleasure I in them. I love the reading them, them because it's you can shout. shouting. That's yeah. right. I do lots yeah. of shouting. Happy shouting and that's pretty great. So tell me then a little bit about the bookshop. Buying into a bookshop from the other side of the world sometimes. Yeah, so what's going on there? It's it's not particularly rational. So there was a there was a discussion with the first book I wrote with Hayden, who's the, the one of the other co-owners, um, about we were going to launch our first book going places, and he commented, "Oh, it's a shame that the bookstore doesn't do events." And I said, "What bookstore?" And he said, "Oh, have I not told you? I'm thinking of buying a bookstore." And we've got a blog post on our website about this, but within two minutes, I'd basically signed up. And then I saw, um, he did a little wonky video walkthrough of the place. It's just magical. I mean, this is the kind of place that people who love books and who loves to who love to read need to have in their lives. And really, that was that was the end of it for me. I mean, it was just that that raw instinct that this place needed to be. And tell tell the listeners a little bit more about what that magic is that's here. So we have seven rooms. We have about 14,000 books. We have this wonderful little garden. There is a tree out the back that is currently shedding guavas like you would not believe. I discovered today that guavas really don't smell that nice. You know, so there's these little these little pockets of imperfection. You know, we're working on it. We're improving it. It but might be you, bearable in about 10 years. Yeah, you walk in here and you smell the books and you see the books and... Yeah, it's it's just a sanctuary. It's just glorious. I love it. Fantastic. Julie, that has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. I think we've covered a lot of things. Economics, parenting, poetry, you know, um, the bookshop. Thanks a lot for coming along. Thanks for inviting me. It's been great. And the bookshop is always here. And if you want to come to live readings, they're usually on the third Sunday of every month at 201 Ponsonby Road. Come along and join us.